Hello, welcome to another episode of Podcasting is Praxis. My name is David and my pronouns are he and him. I am here with Natalie. Hello, uh, I'm here. Uh, my preferred pronouns are she and her. Um, I am really tired this week, so David, if you could take one of my old intros and just edit it in here, so it's going to sound really <laughs> funny, that would be great. <laughs> I'll do what I can. Um, we're also here with Matt. Hi, I'm Matt. Uh, my pronouns are he, she, or they, because I'm a big pronoun slut. <laughs> <laughs> And we have a special guest on, which is James, not any of the other Jameses that we've had on, we've had a few. Uh, this is James, who is an anarchist from the Scottish Greens, who is also here in a personal capacity, um, just to make that known. So welcome, James. Thanks very much, David. Uh, my preferred pronouns are they and them, but I'm not too personally fussed if people mess it up. Okay, doke. So... We've done the pronouns. We don't normally do the pronouns. Um, this episode will be all about trans rights, intersectionality, and the culture war. Two of those terms, I think I have a fairly decent understanding of. So <laughs> this is going to be a lesson for me as much as anyone else who doesn't quite understand what we're talking about here. Um, I'm going to put my hands up now and say I'm pretty fucking pig ignorant on a lot of things. Um when it comes to exactly this kind of thing. Um, I'm probably not very good with race. I'm probably not very good with sexuality. I'm probably not good with gender. Um, but I'm here to learn. And I hope if you're in the same position as me, you'll do you'll do what I'm going to do. You'll listen. I think we should also make it clear, like, you might not be coming from a particularly confident place. And I mean, for us, you know, everything we're going to say is just, you know, our opinions um the whole kind of gender theory and everything that's going on with like transgenderism mm-hmm. um non-binary identity and stuff is kind of very much like evolving to a certain extent and even within the community there's kind of like different ideas so all we're saying is just kind of representing ourselves um and not necessarily like this is the kind of be all end all of like how things should be um, apart yeah, from there's fuck no... transphobia, that is, we're definitely <laughs> saying fuck transphobia. There's no, there's no universal truth to anything that we're really saying here beyond fuck transphobia and fuck terps. <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. you got, you got to love that discourse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, right. So, uh, Natalie, how about you start us off? So can you give us a kind of the cliff notes, the the the, the kind of quick catch up I'm going to need to navigate any conversation we might be having, any terminology, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'm trying to kind of keep this brief, a uh, bit of a glossary uh, without being like too dry and boring about it. Um, so you've got transgender people, um, which means people whose gender identity does not match their birth sex, their biological sex. Um Something you might have heard back in the day was transsexual. That's not so much for preferred term anymore because it's very medicalized. Um, so kind of if you're kind of looking to be respectful, as I'd hope everyone is, uh, transgender would be the term to use. Um, and the reverse of that is cisgender. So that's kind of people whose birth sex matches 
their gender identity. Um, so those are kind of like the two key terms. Um, there's also non-binary. Um, James or Matt, do one of you guys want to uh, kind of explain what that is, seeing as you're kind of more familiar than I am? Uh, yeah, I can hop in. So uh, non-binary is basically anything spectrum outside the spectrum of uh, male and female so in my example it's kind of just both like both is good um there are so many different non-binary identities i won't bother listing them all off here but you know it's an option outside of the binary yeah so it could be for example like switching between the two it could be like none of them at all i believe is that right It, it can be like As you said yourself, the discourse around this is evolving, and we're only just getting to the point where a serious number of people are starting to take transgenderism seriously. And as a result, non-binary identity, which is something, you know, it can be lumped under the trans label. Um, I don't personally consider myself trans, though I do consider myself non-binary. It's something where the discourse is still developing. And so how people use it can sometimes be a little bit confusing. And if anything... That is the, the one, I think, barrier to entry for a lot of people is the fact that the language is still something that's that's being worked on and that people are trying to work out a kind of uh, consensus on. I mean, for my, me personally, when I use non-binary, I kind of mean it in the sense of neither male nor female, which is kind of a polar opposite to how Matt uses it. And both of these are fine. Um, I'm sure over time, as society becomes more accepting, we'll come up with better and more kind of specific terms to indicate how we see ourselves and how we understand each other but as long as we're coming from a position of respect it can be used pretty much anyway i think it's intention that matters more than particular labels would you guys agree with that mm. yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah, it yeah. Good, yeah yeah um and also just kind of when talking about those terms i think it could, could kind of give people an idea of like how prevalent they are in society because a lot of people have the impression that being trans or being non-binary is like a very like out there niche thing um so like kind of based on like the most recent studies which aren't necessarily up to date um the, the estimate was one percent of the population is trans and or non-binary um, we're hopefully um we're hopefully going to get a better estimate of that pretty soon as well because there is hopefully going well there should be it is now law a trans question on the census so yeah we should get some proper data yeah yeah, and I think it also kind of like the generation kind of below us, Gen Z, they are a lot more explorative with the idea of gender than we are. So I think it's something you're definitely going to see kind of go up, kind of like as the kids are alright. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, another term that can kind of get intermixed with the idea of trans identities but isn't really the same thing is intersex so i just kind of thought i'd mention it because intersex people deserve love too um intersex means that you are born with both male and female kind of biological sex characteristics um but it doesn't say anything about your gender's identity um and that is one in two thousand people are born intersex which again is a lot higher than most people would expect it to be um for you yeah. for you stats fans Can that's I... more likely than being a natural redhead oh ah interesting mm. Mm. um i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a question here because uh, i can see it's not specifically said in the notes and this one i think i've got the hang of it but it did trip me up at first when i was learning about 
transitions. Yeah. Um, what is the difference between sex and gender? So sex is your kind of biological um, kind of representation. So it's kind of the characteristics you were born with. So kind of a penis or a vagina, boobs or those kind of things. Um, But then your gender identity is much more internal. It's what's in your head, how you think, how you feel Um, and when you are cis and those two mesh together, that's absolutely fine. There's never any problems. But when you're trans and the way that you look doesn't match the way that you feel within yourself and the way that you expect to represent yourself to society, that can cause huge fucking issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. sex is the sex is the medical descriptor, effectively, the biological yeah. Descriptor yeah. of fact and gender is the how your how your mind fits into the social construct laid down by society in general towards how you should react or not react but how you should think based on your sex. Uh, yeah, it, it's probably worth mentioning that um, many people would consider sex a social construct as well, given that we're not really going off of. We're not really going off of like what your actual chromosomes are. No one gets chromosome tested when mm, they're mm, like mm. six seconds old. They they look and see if you got a dick or not, and yeah. <laughs> base a lot of assumptions on that. There's actually there's quite a bit to be said about this, and I don't want to stray too far into it because I suspect it will come up later when we're looking at debunking myths. But mm-hmm. medically, what we understand today about sex is that, as Natalie alluded to, people can be born with many different combined sexual characteristics. So you have people who are born with, for example, a penis and a vagina, or you have them born with, um, you know, they have ovaries in place of testicles, which can be quite a a dangerous uh, situation because it can lead to cancer. Um, You have all sorts of strange combinations of kind of what would be considered sex traits. And that Mm -hmm. if you actually kind of map them all, you'll find you get two big statistical clumps of people who just have what we would call male sex characteristics and people who just have female sex characteristics. But it's kind of like a bell curve. It's like a bell curve with two big kind of peaks. And Mm -hmm. it means there's this whole... Um, spectrum, for want of a better expression, of people with differently presenting sexual traits. And you can't even rely on chromosomes because there is a there's a particular um, condition um, called, and let's see if I've got this correct, it's uh, testosterone insensitivity, I think is the technical term for it. I may have it wrong, I apologise. Where people grow up, they seem like they are presenting as, as female in terms of their sex, um, but actually... If you look at their chromosomes, they're male, it's just that they have a twist in their DNA, which means that all of the cells in their body are completely and utterly um, insensitive to testosterone. So instead of developing male secondary sex characteristics, they uh, even you know primary ones within the womb, they've developed female ones instead. Because as science tells us, all fetuses start off as female and mm. then start to gain male sex characteristics under the action and influence of testosterone. So it's very complicated. And there are, there are people with strong medical evidence to suggest that our construct of sex is just an easy shorthand. And so if we're starting from that basis, when you start to then put gender on top of that, 
it just becomes a very shaky and difficult house of cards and a very kind of contingent thing to talk about. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. Cro- chromosomes are like any melt who he goes, oh, there are only two sexes, is full of shit anyway, because there's something like eight or nine discovered chromosome options. I think it can be as few as one. It can be as many as four or five. It Like, there's an absurd amount of variance out there. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I, I didn't know what to derail that too hard or anything, but no, that, that was actually quite interesting. Now I've, yeah. I've learned some more now. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, uh, Natalie, carry on. No, but that's all right. Um, so that's kind of like general catch-all terms. I'd also like to kind of go over a few more terms in terms of um, kind of like respectful terms, terms for um, kind of trans issues rather than trans identity, I guess. Um, so kind of a big thing, certainly for me, when I was first going through transition, um, that's when you kind of change from your original biological sex to your presented uh, gender identity. Um, back then, which was a good 10, 15 years ago now, the idea of passing or living in stealth. Um, so if you are a trans person that passes, it means that um, you would be assumed to be cisgendered when people look at you. Um, and the idea of living in stealth is that you kind of actively live as cisgender and you, know, you hide your trans identity from other people. Um, I think that's something that's kind of, I'm sure still, you know, very much talked about, but not quite so pre- like kind of like prevalent or made such a big thing out as trans identity becomes kind of more normalized but of course it's you know still completely somebody's choice whether they want to live in stealth or not um and it's not the sort of thing where you would out them without their consent you know absolutely like any form of um lgbtq plus identity you never out anyone it's always up to them um so that's that um another what uh kind of term that's come up recently is dead naming which is when you use your kind of old name from your kind of previously presented gender um to refer to someone um so for me i'm a trans woman so it'd be you know if you used me by the name i had when i was a boy when i was young that'd be dead naming me um that is very very offensive um, and not to be done. Um, we the idea of preferred pronouns, which we kind of mentioned at the start. You know, that's just the kind of thing where it's being respectful of people, and again, just calling people what they want to be called, because there's no need to be a dick about it. Basically, um, the universal rule. Yeah, exactly. That's really kind of all trans people all non-binary people are asking for is just don't be a dick which i don't (laughs) think is that hard um so then something a lot of people know and kind of wonder about and question about is gender reassignment surgery um like what happens do they kind of turn your dick into a pussy do they turn your pussy into a dick um at the end of the day do your own research because what is going on with my downstairs region is none of your fucking business um, would be my answer to that question. Um, 
it's a very common thing for cis people to kind of ask what is up with our genitals. It, yeah, it's very offensive. So please don't do that. Um, kind of related to that is the idea of transmedicalism, um, which is a certain kind of subset of kind of trans theory that um, trans identity is only valid if you have had uh, sexual reassignment surgery, um, which again, that was kind of very prevalent back when I was um, kind of transitioning myself. But that has kind of started to kind of fall out and now being seen as kind of like offensive in its own right. Um, and a term that a lot of people will be very familiar with will be the term TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, it's I personally hate that term. I think we should just call everyone transphobes because that is what they are. Um, but, you know, that's everyone's own choice. Um, Some people have been going recently for farts. Yeah. Uh, feminism yeah. appropriating <laughs> radical transphobes. Yeah, yeah, that's good as well. I do like that one. Um, and I just kind of wanted to close out this little glossary by um, touching on words that are offensive. Um, they are slurs for referring to trans people, which you might not have been aware of. Um, tranny is a slur. She-male, even though it is heavily used in the porn industry, it is a slur. Uh, chick with dick, again, heavily used in the porn industry, it is a slur. Um, hermaphrodite is basically a slur for intersex people these days, is my understanding. Um... Trap, which is a term used heavily in anime commu fan communities for trans people, is a huge fucking slur because it very much plays on the idea of trans people being deceptive. Um, which, yeah, that's a whole issue, um, which is awful. Um, I don't even have words for it right now. Um, it, get, it gets people fucked up, like, really badly. It gets people killed. Like, for real. Actually killed. It's why we have Trans Day of Remembrance. If I could slightly add at this point, um, as is the issue with all language, it can be quite contingent on the people who are speaking it and how they're intending it. When, you know, Natalie is saying that these words are slurs, they're almost universally recognised as being offensive and primarily they tend to be used in ways which are intended as offensive as well when they get used. Um, it may be that some people individually, some trans people might jokingly use some of these terms or they might be fine with their friends sometimes using them in much the same way as the N-word can be banded about um, by people who are African-American. Um, it's a contingent thing. And so I'd like to encourage anyone who think, who's listening to this and thinks, oh, I've heard this term being used in, by a person who's trans, just because they're using it or it's used in a different context doesn't mean it's not offensive. And to go back to the golden rule of don't be a dick, when in doubt, you should quietly and, you know, um, carefully check how the people you're speaking with actually regard the language that you use. Because you might be surprised at the things they find offensive that they've been putting up with. So just a thought. I think yeah. that's a great yeah. point. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's kind of like something that <clears throat> basically like all trans people or non-binary people would kind of share the idea that we get it, but it can be something that people aren't familiar with. But if you're respectful um, and you just ask out of politeness um, and then just, yeah, listen to us, then that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, people would be okay with that um, as long as you're not expecting them to kind of give you the answers to all of life's problems. Cool. All right. That was that was that was good. A um, couple of terms in there I hadn't heard of. Um, I wasn't really aware of the whole transmedicalism thing. Um, that's that's not something I've ever came across. Then again, as a cis guy, I'm probably unlikely to. It's quite a new concept in mm, kind of the mm-hmm. world of transgender. So yeah, I think it's still very yeah. much. I've only learned about it a few months ago. So. Oh, fair enough then. It's <laughs> no surprises. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Um, stealth was another one. I hadn't, I hadn't ever heard. I, I understood the concept. Like I was yeah. aware of the concept, but I just wasn't aware of the actual terminology for it. So that's yeah. good to know. Um, right, James, you said we were going to talk about debunking some myths. So Yeah, so um, I think everyone who listens to this will be aware that part of the reason we're doing this podcast is not just, you know, blanket, broad um, consciousness raising about the issue. It's in response to a lot of some terrible stuff we've seen in the media recently that's been specifically having a go at trans people. And as kind of part of that, you may find that a lot of TERFs or just transphobes in general tend to just outright spread lies about what the process of transitioning actually is. Um, and they, they spread these lines to kind of stir up resentment and to, you know, enable their agenda, which we'll be talking about more later, um, to basically exclude trans people from society. And so I thought it would be quite useful, just as a kind of baseline, to talk about the actual process, if you're in the UK, of transitioning on the NHS, because this is something that gets lied about. And I, I'm really, you know, I, I can't think of any other way to say it other than lies, because you'll frequently hear stories about children transitioning, for example. Mm -hmm. And these these stories are used as kind of like a thin end of a wedge to try and characterise the movement for trans rights as being extreme, as being dangerous. It's pure think-of-the-children hysteria. But if you actually go and if you actually read what the NHS's advice says on the subject of transitioning, you quickly realise that it's pretty much all bullshit. And that actually the rules that exist, although they're far from perfect, particularly from a trans perspective, they are careful and considerate and they're very far from outrageous. So if people don't mind, I'd like to kind of just summarise briefly some of the stuff that's said under NHS guidance. And I'd like to ask, David, would it be okay to put a link to the NHS guidance in the the, uh, the description yeah. of the show? Because I think it's important that when people hear stuff that is having a go at the trans community, that they stop and actually fact check it against trustworthy sources. Because um, mm-hmm. that's the easiest way to counter this kind of pernicious ignorance. So... Let's say that you're a parent and your child is sad all the time, they're deeply upset, and they don't like to play with the toys that have been bought them, they you know, don't like the clothes that have been brought them, and generally they, they keep insisting that they're not the gender that has been assumed of them. Let's say that you start to com- contemplate that your child might actually... Are they trans? Is that a thing that can happen when they're still children? you decide you're going to take them to a doctor and get it checked out. Now, 
let's say you hit the jackpot and you get a doctor who is inclined to listen to this and take it seriously. Because that's the first problem that trans people of all ages encounter is that more often than not, the medical profession is very dismissive of the possibility of people being trans and it gets downplayed mm -hmm. pretty significantly. And this kind of dismissal um, is one of the primary barriers to people actually beginning to figure out who they are and to act upon it. So let's say you get a good doctor though. If you have a child who's under the age of 18, they'll first kind of ask them a series of, of very careful questions. There's a whole series of surveys that are produced by the NHS specifically for this purpose to gauge the likelihood that they might have what's called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the medical definition uh, that you are required to meet before you can transition genders under the NHS. Um, and what gender dysphoria means is dead simple. It means that you feel dysphoria, the opposite of euphoria. You feel terrible, you feel sad, you feel ill, you feel depressed. Um, it, it, you can imagine it in the extreme. You feel this all the time and you feel it because who you are conceived of as in society, how you see yourself, these things don't match up. And so to even begin down the medical path of transition, you need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So the doctor will do a brief assessment and assuming that they, they fill out the survey, they compare the notes, assuming that they say, oh, it looks like there's, there's a probability here that your child might have some issues. What happens next is actually laid out under the NHS in quite a lot of detail. Um, they'll usually refer the child to a specialist child and adolescent gender identity clinic. Um, and the staff at these clinics will carry out a much more detailed assessment of the child's condition, asking the child questions, asking the family questions, sometimes even asking friends or family and others questions as well. They can be quite really exhaustive and grilling about this because they kind of want to be sure. Um, and depending on the results of this assessment, um, they will then arrange for the child's to receive some kind of treatment for gender dysphoria. Now, it's important to stress that treatment for gender dysphoria at this point does not mean immediately going on, you know, sex changing hormones, and it certainly doesn't mean surgery. What that means in practice is that they refer the child to the care of a multidisciplinary team. And this is a group of different healthcare professionals who work together and includes specialists like mental health professionals and pediatric and now let me see if I pronounce this correctly, endocrinologists who are specialists in hormone conditions in children. And most of the treatments that are offered at this stage for people who are under the age of 18 are purely psychological. They are very, very reluctant to do any kind of medical treatments whatsoever. And this is one of the other barriers that young trans people in particular really struggle with, whether they're very young, like, you know, five or six, or whether they're like 16, 17, nearly full adults. Um, the psychological support is primarily just a chance for you know children to talk through with their families how they feel and to gain a deeper understanding of where they're at. If, however, the child is very clearly distressed and this multidisciplinary team is very convinced that actually they, they have gender dysphoria and they're prepared to give them that diagnosis, which again, you're fighting uphill to get this, the main treatment that they will offer children who manage to get through to this stage is a kind of hormone therapy. Now, you may have heard stories, you'll have heard like, you know, people in the press and others lying and saying, oh, you know, they're giving children hormones to change their sex. That doesn't really happen on the NHS. As Natalie will know uh, uh, better than me, and as others who've gone through the NHS are aware, 
getting any kind of hormone treatment is incredibly difficult, and all the more so when it's children. But when you do, when, when hormone treatment is provided, it actually comes in two halves. One half is the set of hormones matching the gender that the person should be. Children don't get that. They get the other half. The other half is a series of hormones that block existing puberty hormones. Um, the technical term for these is, you know, here we go, gonadotrophin-releasing hormone, or GNRH. Um, what these do is, say you have someone who is, uh, you know, assumed male and born with male sex characteristics. If they take these supplements, which are just the pills they take, then what they do is they block testosterone at puberty. And so they remain in a kind of childlike developmental state um, for longer. And the reverse is true if you give the, the same things to a child who's, you know, born and assumed to be uh, female based on their sex presentation, it blocks estrogen um, and essentially prevents them from developing secondary female sex characteristics like breasts, for example. And that this is like the, the, the greatest extent that the NHS is willing to go for children until they are like, you know, 18 or so, is to basically say, look, we know that you think you might be transgender. And we know that you are suffering under gender dysphoria, but we don't want to jump to anything hasty. So what we'll do is we'll delay your puberty for you to figure it out. That's it. That's absolutely it. it now, the NHS... Sorry, Sorry it, go on, Natalie. Just wanted to say, it should be pointed out that if you are a trans child, and that is for treatment that is being offered, it's helpful, but it doesn't really solve the problem. So until you're 18, you are still going to be struggling with your dysphoria on a daily basis. Um, and if you're young, that could be for years and years before you'll be getting any kind of treatment that will actually have a positive impact. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said at the beginning, this, this medical process is really not that great. And it has a lot of flaws, particularly from the perspective of, of being trans. Um, so I don't want you know listeners to kind of read into this that I am approving the NHS's approach to this. What I'm hoping that we're getting across here is that when you read stories in the papers about groups um, talking about all the terrible things which are done to young children, it's, it's total nonsense. It's complete fabrication. And it's purely positioned there to, to rouse up that kind of parent sentiment of, oh, think of the children. It's so, probably worth um, yeah. it's probably worth mentioning that puberty blockers in other areas of medicine are really not very controversial either. Like they give them to children who get puberty too early. Like you're seeing you're seeing periods age nine or ten. They'll put you on puberty blockers because it's clearly happening too early. Yeah, and all it does is it just delays puberty. So if you're on puberty blockers from like the age of fourteen to eighteen and then you decide that you are not trans, that you are cisgender, um, all that happens is you just have delayed puberty a few years late. They do no kind of lasting, irreversible change to your body. Yeah. It's, uh, it's. I mean, you will also hear stories from time to time where we talk about, oh, you know, these drugs are dangerous, they have side effects, but let's be real here. Every medicine that exists has side effects. The whole reason they're given under medical supervision is to mitigate them and to do it in a, a helpful, not harmful way. 
And so, uh, you know, I, I really can't stress the contempt I feel, and I think is shared here for all these these scare stories that go around. Um, and it's particularly offensive because it's been used to attack charities that exist purely to help children get on this treadmill, this waiting treadmill. You may have heard, for example, I don't know if you'll have heard about this, David, but there is a charity called Mermaids who exists to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. assist young people who may be trans. And they've received an absolute pillaring in the press um, from the likes of um, Graham Lineham, one of the mm-hmm. writers of Harvard oh, yeah. Ted, and a whole variety of others with just absolute nonsense made up about what they do and the support they offer. And primarily they attack them through, through just stating straight up lies. And the we'll problem with the lie... We'll get that bucket in a minute. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... Um, I, taking note of the time, I suppose I should probably press on and explain a, a little bit about the adult services. So let's say that you're in a slightly better position. Let's say that you it's you yourself who have decided, wait a minute, I think, I think I've got some issues here. I don't think maybe I'm the, the gender that has always been assumed, that even I've always assumed. I think maybe that feeling I've had that something's wrong. Maybe it's I've been thinking I'm the wrong gender. And you decide, okay, I'm going to go talk to my doctor about this. Again, one of the barriers people face is the fact that doctors don't listen. And you need this diagnosis of gender dysphoria before they'll even consider starting you on the process of transitioning. And one of the major problems that exists right now is that it all comes down, is so medicalized that it comes down to the opinion of medical professionals as to what you actually think and what you actually feel and who you yourself actually really are. And this means that to even get started, you first have to convince a medical professional that you are, in fact, the gender you say you are, that um, you, you, the way people have treated you thus far, the sex it says on your birth certificate, that that's wrong. If you come to a medical professional and you have doubts, there's not actually that much support for being able to talk through these things, believe it or not. There's no, there is no service offered under the NHS for you to go and have a long chat with a psychologist to try and figure out your gender identity. Instead, they kind of assume you kind of got that done. And if you turn up to a doctor expressing doubts, for the nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, the doctor's just going to kind of take it with a pinch of salt, suggest you go away and think about it, and just try and move you on. So the people who actually end up getting gender reassignment surgery at the end of the day, they're the ones who've actually persisted through just getting themselves listened to to begin with. And that, of course, leads to a problem that a lot of people find, which is that they're under this intense pressure to be sure that in itself can be be kind of off-putting. There's no there's no real support there to figure through what is a complicated issue. What the NHS kind of insists on, essentially, in practice, is that if you turn up at the doctor and say, look, I'm 99.9% sure I'm trans. No, in fact, I'm 100% sure. Please, can we start some kind of therapy? They actually insist that you live as your chosen gender pre-hormones and pre-surgery for, I believe, um, people can correct me if I'm wrong, a year before they'll even consider actually starting any hormone treatments, during which time you're expected to present yourself as the sex you wish to be. Um, And present yourself often, again, this is under the opinion of the medical professionals assessing you. Basically, you kind of have to live to the preconceptions of the medical professionals that are treating you in a way. My I don't want to get too personal here, but my best friend is trans and she is currently just starting that process. And it's very difficult because there's a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of process of, of pressure to conform to this process and to present in a tremendously feminine way um, in order to have her gender confirmed. 
But as we know, not everyone, even, even among the people who identify as being women, not all of them present in a very femme way. And so it's very, it's, it's basically putting down these very tight boxes and saying, make yourself fit into these. And only after that do we start hormone therapy. And only after hormone therapy for years, and again, lengthy protracted um, discussions with specialists on the NHS to convince them, only then will they actually consider gender reassignment surgery, which is very much the, the very last thing that, and the thing that in many cases they're most loath to give. And what I really want to get across here is it's a fight. This is not an easy process. There's no one walks into the doctor and goes, hey, listen, I feel like I'm this other agenda. And the doctor goes, yep, okay, we'll schedule in for next Tuesday. It doesn't happen. It's a multi-year process. Sorry to jump in. Like, I just want to add that you know, we're talking about this multi-year process. If you are going for transition through the NHS, there is, before you can even see your first gender specialist, there is a two-year waiting list, or at least there was when I was um, transitioning, and I believe it's still the same. There is uh, yeah, if you're, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably longer now. Um, but you were talking multiple years to wait just to see your first gender specialist to discuss the idea that you might one day be able to get hormones. Um so it's a long fucking struggle. Um, alternatively, if you can afford it, you do have the option of going private. There are a few kind of private specialists who will be able to kind of help you through hormone therapy. Um, and then you can pay for private surgery if you desire. Because not every trans person wants to get gender reassignment surgery. Um, and it's not necessarily expected that you have to. Um, but if you do go for private option, um, for me, for all of my transition, it cost me about 20 grand. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So that's the amount that you're expected to outlay or else you have to struggle for five, ten years just to get to the end point of where you want to be. Um, and I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged that I was able to kind of take that private route um, because the majority of trans people are not. Um, because like any minority, they are the ones that are getting kind of marginalized by society um kind of the most poor the most vulnerable etc etc and it's worth pointing out that on top of that heartbreak going private the, the private doctors still have to adhere to the clinical guidelines for the nhs follows all yeah. the going private lets you do is skip the waiting lists most of the time and one of the things that i hope i'm getting across is that the clinical process itself you know, at bare minimum, let's say you're loaded with cash and you go in and you're dead certain and you meet all the right people and there's no waiting list, it still takes forever. It's a very, very long time. I will say that I didn't have to wait a year to get hormones. Um, I started living as a woman and I got my first batch of hormones a couple of months later. So that little part of it is sped up. But then, yeah, you still got to go through all the hassle. You still got to get everything signed off by therapists and such to kind of say that it's okay, etc. So I've just, just done a cheeky Google. Uh, current waiting times at uh, NHS GICs, uh, that's gender identity clinics, in reverse order, Glasgow 15 months, Edinburgh 15 months, 
Uh, Sheffield, 19 months. Jesus. Northumberland, Middlesbrough, 24 months. Charing Cross, 24 months. Belfast, 24 months. Uh, Leeds, 25, 26 months. Nottingham, 30 months. Exeter, oh, 34 Jesus. months. Northamptonshire is the worst at 40 months. Three... Oh, my God. Three and a half fucking years, people. Yeah. And you wonder why trans people are committing suicide. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, I went with a year figure because that's what my best friend was told when she went to, to transition. Um, clearly, I mean, I bet you the clinical guidance says after a period. And I guess the NHS, at least in Scotland where I am, has decided a year is that period. Um, again, do your own research. Uh, double check any facts and figures we're throwing out here. We're pretty confident that the truth seems to have a left bias. But um, to kind of to conclude this little section, right, I'd like you, the listener, to kind of picture for a minute. Picture for a minute that you yourself or someone you care intimately about has has gone through this process or is going through this process. Now imagine that at the end of it, after all the the blood, sweat and tears that you put into constructing a social acceptance of this, this truth that you live, your gender, imagine that you just get dismissed. Imagine that people don't take it seriously. And then worse, imagine that other people lie to your face in the paper every day about what you had to go through to get this to make you sound like you're some kind of monster. This is the, like, rage doesn't begin to describe just how horrible it is, how bitter it is, and how cynical it is. So, yeah. That's possibly a good way to segue into how utterly terrible the uh, coverage is in the media of trans issues. Yeah. Um, So I was going to start off with a bit of a history of... Turfs in the UK, which is the new hot album. Um, Because one thing I always hear, especially when talking to sort of uh, queer people in America, is just the absolute incredulity of how we have such a big problem with this. Yeah, I mean... Go for it. One thing that you can say about America is that the transphobic movement over there is very much led by um, the white right-wing evangelical kind of Catholic Christian movement, um, whereas feminism is very much united with trans people, um, and that you just don't have that split over there because feminism has had its own internal wars in the past over other kind of wedges um whereas over here it's very much a new fight um so yeah it's kind of like a whole new conversation over here which is why it exists but please do continue i mean we are now being led by that part is now being led by the uh, american far-right evangelical bit but we'll get to that in a little while um so yeah as was alluded to british transphobia has roots in sort of second wave radical feminism um, the Guardian especially has offered a platform to transphobic feminism for at least a decade. It's possibly even longer. Um, you'll especially see things in sort of when they had comment is free, which thankfully is dead in the ground. But, you know, that's that's where the roots of it come from. You've got your, your classic second wave uh, radical feminist article writers and book writers like your Jermaine Greer's, 
your Suzanne Moores, your Julie Bindles. And I mean, it's not super surprising if you have any uh, sort of idea on second wave feminism. There's a lot of stuff around, you know, promoting what it means to be a woman and sort of you it's not surprising some gender essentialism has crept in there but yes the they definitely use feminist credentials to and their platforms especially in the guardian to promote transphobia and this has been going on for ages it starts to pick up momentum more in sort of the middle of this decade and that's where you start getting more of the young middle class writers such as your Sarah Dittums um you know you're starting to get more of the younger generation uh still you know still very much contained within the left wing publications but we are starting to see more momentum then you get the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act, which, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, somehow through all of this rubbish that's been in the media, the proposals to the, that uh, for changes to the Gender Recognition Act are simply that you wouldn't have to do all this two-year or one-year bullshit to before you got taken seriously by a doctor. You just go, hi, I think I, oh, you know, I am sure I am this. And I'm willing to make a legally binding statement signed by a lawyer or whatever to say that this is this is who I am. Please recognize me as this. And the state would go, yep, that's absolutely fine. Just so you know, you're pissing us about. Here's some penalties. This is the way they do it in places like Ireland. I believe Malta's the same. It's not, it's not a big deal. Um, there are, and you know, places like Ireland, they've had exactly zero prosecutions for like taking the piss of this. Can we just, Could I come can, in briefly here? Uh, yeah, go for it. I wanted to as well, but you go first. No, no, Natalie, you know what? You, you, uh, you go ahead. Okay. We might've been about to talk about the same thing. I don't know. I also wanted to kind of think, say, this is a good time to talk about the gender recognition certificate, um, which is a piece of paper that you get from the government once you have fully transitioned and lived as a woman or lived as a man, etc. Um, it is a piece of paper that you can apply for, which says that you are now your new gender identity. Um, if you don't have that, um, there's very little that you can't get. Um, you can't get married under your kind of new gender um or if you get sent to prison you can't go to um a kind of gendered prison of your new gender but everything else is exactly the same um so for example on my passport i don't have a drc but my passport says f and everything like legally but i have says that i'm a woman um so it's just this kind of very minor thing and another part of the kind of changes to the gra was going to say that uh, you didn't need a gender recognition certificate for any of that. All you have to do was to self-identify as a man or a woman. And that would kind of be good enough for being able to kind of get married or civil partnership or kind of being able to go to the kind of prison that you should be going to as well. Which um, is no prisons. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of important to mention that, especially the kind of you know, conversations we'll be having about women's only spaces at some point. 
Hi folks, it's Natalie here. Um just making an interjection into the conversation. Um one thing that unfortunately we kind of neglected to kind of really focus on during our recording um was the kind of topic of trans men. And I kind of thought it was important that we just kind of come back and touch on their issues um and kind of like how they relate to transphobia the turf movement and things of that nature um because what commonly happens in these situations is that trans men get erased um they're kind of not part of a the conversation they very much get ignored um obviously there's a lot of focus on trans women because trans women are in kind of very vulnerable and kind of do need access to these spaces uh but trans men are also vulnerable um and also important um the kind of transphobic feminist movement um their view of trans men in general is that they are kind of just being fooled into kind of playing in to the patriarchy um, that they're kind of trying to be men, but they never will be because, um, you know, trans identities aren't real, whatever. Um, so it's very much the same kind of transphobia, just kind of directed in the opposite direction. Um, there's a lot of patronising going on in terms of the way that they're treated. Um, you also see um, when we're talking about kind of trans youth, a lot of that gets directed towards young trans men. Um, there's a lot of focus um, around the idea that uh, you're teaching young girls who should be butch lesbians and making them be trans men instead. Um, it's just another cavalcade of bullshit. Um, I do not have as much familiarity with it as I would like. I certainly don't kind of purport myself to be an expert on trans men issues by any means. Um, if it is something that you kind of think would be of interest, I do encourage you to explore it more, um, kind of research it. Um, yeah, and again, sorry, but we kind of neglected to kind of get this kind of mentioned during the main discussion, which I will now send you back to. Thank you. Bye. I, I was going to talk a little bit kind of related about the, the Gender Recognition Act and just to kind of to make some basic things clear, because I'm worried that the three of us um, are perhaps making assumptions about what David and, and the audience know. Oh, yeah, go for um, it. The Gender Recognition Act is basically the legislation that handles gender and handles transitioning. And I'm not going to get deep into the technicalities of it, but as Natalie said, if you are looking to transition under the Gender Recognition Act, currently it's very medicalized and you kind of have to go through a whole process and tick a whole series of boxes under medical supervision before you can then apply to get this certificate saying, hey, your gender has changed. And... As a result, there's many, there's many trans people who just don't actually bother to get the certificate. And you might think, well, what's the problem then? The problem is that even though they can still get their gender recognized on a passport and other documents, there are many cases such as going to prison or 
when it comes to issues around private pensions and state pensions and all this kind of thing, where gender legally really matters. And it matters for things like marriage. And it matters for things, believe it or not, um, it can matter under circumstances to do with adoption and a whole variety of things that you just wouldn't consider and that you don't have to consider because you have the luxury of either, you know, either your 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 documentation matches the gender you feel you are and you know you are, or it doesn't match, but you you know it, it's it's not an inconvenience to you, which is the, the camp I end up being in. Um, so the, the, there are there have been these talks about reforms of the Gender Recognition Act, and the general thrust that people have been pushing for is to demedicalize it and to stop treating it as an issue where the state has to take a, an adversarial approach, as it kind of does now. Because at, at present, the state basically kind of sits there with folded arms and says, oh yeah, prove it. Which in most issues, most legal issues, you don't have to do that. In most legal issues, it's sufficient to go, well, my word is my bond, and here is a duly notarized, witnessed, you know, uh, signature saying that yes, I testify this is a case. Um, and so it's been it's been quite dispiriting seeing the amount of fight back that reforms of Gender Recognition Act have received. And I'll toss back over to you, Matt and Natalie. Yeah, it, it should be a really, really boring bureaucratic process. As you say, my word's my bond. I've said this. If it's not Come after me, but you know it should be good enough for now. Um, the, these the changes proposed as as of as have been laid out there. That's the entire effects of them. Then there's nothing else to it. There's nothing sinister going on. You wouldn't know it from the media. Everything's gone into super high gear. Um, massive concern trolling, basically over sort of women-only spaces. And, I mean, Natalie, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, sure. Um, did we write anything specific in the notes? or um, No, we didn't. Okay. Um, so, for example, um, women's-only spaces, we are talking about things like women's refuges. That's kind of one of the most common ones. Um, you know, that's for kind of women who are surviving domestic violence and such. Um, trans women especially will be um, huge targets for violence because of their trans identity. They are more vulnerable um, and um, are very much in need of this kind of support and having access to this support. So attempting to kind of exclude them and push them out is just kind of leading them into more danger of more violence, more abuse, um, potentially being murdered. Because that's, yeah, like we say, that is a thing. Um, also things like uh, women's changing room, rooms, uh, women's toilets. That's another one where there is kind of huge arguments and stuff. Um, there's huge um, kind of protests that men will come in and attack women or assault women, um, abuse women just um, because they can say that they are a woman themselves and get away with it. Um, and then women's prisons as well. Um, and I think the, really the key thing with all of this is um, as um, Dawn Butler, the shadow women's inequalities minister, has pointed out recently during the election, trans people already have all of these rights. Um, all of these rights are included in the Equalities Act of, I believe, 2010. 
um, trans people have been kind of using these spaces for years and years and years without issue. Uh, women's refuges have very much written in support of allowing trans women access. Um, I personally, I can understand that, you know, for an abuse survivor that it might be triggering to see a trans woman who doesn't necessarily pass. Um, but at the same time, women's refugees have been working with that. They kind of understand and they have worked out these problems before. So it's not like this is suddenly a new issue. Um, you've got countries where, you know, as you said already, you know, this stuff is already kind of more um, kind of allowed legally and you're not seeing these issues develop. It's very much just fear mongering um, to um, kind of pull the ladder up amongst um, predominantly white middle class feminists. Yeah, it's 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 worth stating at this point that these concerns are bollocks. Um, there's there's <laughs> nothing, no, nothing to them at all. Uh, but you know it plays well. It's 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 really frustrating, and you know it has a lot of echoes of the sort of crap that, uh, especially gay men went through in the eighties. It was all the same stuff: perverters of youth, a bathroom panics, all that sort of shit. It's the same arguments. We're just thirty, forty da- years down the line. It's all the same thing again. And what? I hope we're getting across is, yet again, it's arguments based on lies and misrepresentations, which you can't get any more naked than that. Yeah, absolutely. The the problem here is that since it's kicked into this high gear, it's developed into a bit more of a mass movement. Um, So the the sort of turf area of it has gotten bigger, but you've also started getting interest from the right wing, the right wing shit rags. Yeah. Uh, You're especially seeing it in the Times and Telegraph. You've always had a bit of shit from, you know, your red tops, your sons, etc. But the Times and Telegraph, especially just printing bollocks on this day in, day out to the point where they've been taken to court by trans members of their staff because of the hostile environment they're causing. Um, you're also seeing a lot more overt transphobia rather than sort of the dog whistles we were getting in the early decade. So, you, it, you know, it's more militant and combative tones. And my suspicion, this is purely speculation, is that this is linked to the fact that a lot of the sort of turf groups nowadays are getting a lot of their funding from the American evangelical far right. Uh, you're seeing yes. yeah. people like uh, figureheads like Posey Parker are now actually going over to America to fucking anti-abortion rallies, despite being professed feminists. Because they're they're the you know it's a solidarity thing for them. They helped us out, so we'll go help them out in their anti-abortion thing. And you'd think if you were like a hardcore feminist, um, particularly if you were a lesbian or bisexual feminist, that when you were starting to work with the fucking evangelical right, who have been having a go at you for the last thirty years you might start to think that there's a fucking problem there. You'd have hoped. <laughs> yeah. It, it's 
it's the whole are we the paddies sketch from Mitchell and Webb. (laughs) It's like they're looking around, they're seeing the, you know, um, praise Jesus speaking in tongues, like gay bashing rights all around them on one side. They're seeing the guys in white hoods on the other and they're just kind of going, they're going, nope, this is fine. This is totally okay. This is where I belong. And I think we should point out the reason why the right is funding this effort against trans people so much is because they have lost the fight against lesbian gay bisexual people you know they spent 30 years trying to push back on that and lesbian gay bi identity is now there's still homophobia but it's still like legally accepted within society there's been huge strides huge progress and being openly nakedly homophobic is no longer acceptable so they are now focusing on cutting away trans people so that they can start rolling back on lgbt people in general and once they've done us they're just gonna keep going you've already seen examples of this people people are letting the mask slip on that one and you're seeing you're seeing people talk about you know they're starting to use similar language about LGB people and it, it's just going to continue. Yeah, in particular. So another bit of personal information, I'm bisexual. And um, it's interesting already watching that there's a lot of people in this kind of turfy movement who are sort of saying, oh, but bisexual people, they're kind of greedy, aren't they? And it's like, you know, they're just, they're, they're trying to get this special status for themselves when it doesn't exist. Because let's be honest, you're either straight or you're gay, right? And gay people, gay people are totally fine. And straight people, of course, straight people are fine. But these bisexual people, they're just, they're just, they're indecisive. They can't choose. All this ret- rhetoric, which we've heard decades ago, and which was firmly defeated, it's starting to just creep back in on a periphery because they're doing so well with their trans bashing that they think, all oh, right, okay, well, let's queue up the next one and get ready. And uh, it's disgusting and it's naked. And what's really one of the things that, that really grabs you about it when you start to notice it and you're paying attention to it is just how few people actually seem to pause and reflect and go, you know, six months ago, I, I, I didn't think this and I wasn't saying this and this wasn't OK. You know, they don't seem aware that they're sliding into this. And I suppose we'll be talking more about that later. Right. It's prevalent, right? Or prevalent, sorry, prevalent. It's it's obviously a fucking problem. And the emboldening of it is one of the most worrying parts to me. Like anything that can pick up the the momentum and as a movement grows, obviously it becomes more dangerous. How how are these movements actually growing? Uh, so it's kind of as we said, a lot of it is funded by the right wing of America. So it's very much the whole AstroTurf kind of scenario where you have kind of these kind of charities, I say that in quotes, or organisations that are kind of set up as kind of like feminist women voices. Um, I think, what's it, is it called a woman's voice or a woman's place? I cannot remember. A woman's place. That, I don't, like... You're nakedly, you know, opening up with the fact that you are clearly anti-feminist in your feminist movement with that one. Um, but yeah, there's... The, sad, the sad thing is, the sad thing is, it's run by the wife of the person who run, who's the general secretary of my union. It's run ah. by Ruth Savotka. That's a shame. 
it's also maybe worth commenting that their branding on this is incredibly on point because they're using a lot of the money they're being funded to actually workshop terminology to use. Like it's it's really kind of gross. Um, like a woman's place to us, we're kind of hearing that and going, oh, women should know their place. That's, you know, that's Christian right kind of rhetoric kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, but to them, to them is on point because it gets across the idea that women's spaces are being invaded. And they've workshopped it very closely to act as a, a dog whistle to all the allies on the alt-right, for want of a better expression, whilst also appealing to the fears and prejudices of the group they're targeting. And it's really, it's really cynical. They're also, I mean, you'll have heard the term gender critical being banded around, saying, oh no, we're not TERFs, we're just gender critical feminists. And it's pure sophistry. And I'll be talking about that in particular uh, later on, but they are using this money, not just, uh, you think, oh, they, what they're putting this money toward. It's not just setting up these campaigning groups. It's also paying for corporate polishing of their bullshit. Mm-hmm. So well, what are these campaigning groups actually doing then? Like, where, where are they actually campaigning? Because you don't tend to see, like, you know, the, the local turf parade. Like, how, how, how are they actually, like, getting this out there? So a lot of this uh, stuff happens online. Um, there's a lot of like common tactics that the tra- transphobic movement will use, like especially on Twitter. Um, mm. They've taken to kind of mass reporting um, kind of trans positive accounts. Um, they then use kind of like alt Twitter accounts to amplify their voice. Um, in, for instance, the case of Monroe Bergadoff, who's a prominent trans woman of colour. Um, I think it was earlier this year, she was put in a safeguarding role with the NSPCC until the NSPCC was brigaded, brigade, brigaded pardon me, um, by all of the kind of transphobic movement um, and just amplifying each other's voices um, and then kind of, as I say, setting up organisations to kind of promote this ideology um, under the guise of trans positivity as well, which is really insidious. Um, One of the kind of commonly known ones within the trans community is a group called Transgender Trend, which kind of promotes itself to parents as kind of like what's going on with this whole trans thing your kid might be getting into. We've got the answers. We'll explain what it is. Don't worry. And it's just there to kind of promote transphobia at the end mm. of the day. Um, the um, One of the things I do actually remember, since you mentioned brigading there, um, I remember it was mermaids yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, um, they had a massive lottery grant that was going to be put to them. And then Graham Linehan did a big shit on Twitter and yeah. all the all the echoes and ripples came out and the, the money got kind of paused slash taken away from them while they investigated or whatever. Um, but then obviously, um, uh, <laughs> top lad, uh, H-Bomber guy. Yeah, Donkey um, Kong 64, three days straight. Yes. Um, <laughs> Donkey Kong says trans rights. <laughs> <laughs> Beaver status definitely bothered. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was very nice. And also, you might not have heard, but after all of that, in the end, Mermaids not only got the $350,000 that he raised, but they got the initial donation as well, which was very cool. Um, 
But yeah, especially like Graham Linehan has somehow, you know, the writer of Father Ted in the IT crowd has somehow become one of the big voices in the kind of transphobic movement and has become a big idol amongst transphobic feminists. Um, And the irony of a whole load of women going to a man to be told what to do is not lost on me. (laughs) It's right out of the evangelical you know, playbook over in America where what they've been doing is they like to have allies that they can point to. You know, they like to have people who they can say, look, they're not in the affected group. They have no dog in this fight. They're just concerned and we're able to point to them as a good ally. And this is the sort of person you should emulate. And to kind of, to add a little bit more, there's not just the brigading happening online, because that can sound almost spontaneous, can't it? It can sound like, oh, some turf somewhere has seen something, has got a bunch of mates and it's grown from there. What I'd like to talk about with a little bit of my kind of campaigning background, which I've done professionally, is I'm very acutely aware that these campaign organisations set up, they actively kind of astroturf this. They make it look like it's grassroots when it's actually not. Um, they will do things like they'll have campaign staff whose job it is, is to kind of sit there and monitor social media and look for opportunities that they could play. And then to issue email list calls to their, you know, diehard activists to say, okay, everyone, we need to put pressure here in this particular way. Same as, for example, in healthy society, we've got The Electoral Reform Society does a lot of good work around here, right to this MP at this time if you want to see a change to first pass the post. Um, They do kind of the same thing, but it's much darker and much more insidious. Mm. And um, in addition to that, they also, you know, they'll set up other groups which are basically think tanks and they use these to get transphobic stuff in the press by going, oh, listen, the Institute for Gender Critical Studies or whatever equivalent has just put out a report Um, saying that um, incidents of male-on-female violence has risen dramatically and they're tying it directly to, and just, you know, complete sophistry, complete nonsense. But by putting this report out and giving it to a friendly journalist who may well be a turf, um, as we've heard from a lot of these newspapers doing their dirt, um, they give it to a friendly journalist. The friendly journalist then gets to turn around and do a both sides coverage story where they ask for comment and quote from... I, uh, they'll ask like a trans uh, organization representative and we've heard that, you know, there's some of them are being set up specifically to feed bullshit. Or even if they ask someone who's legit, they'll then get to turn around and go and to balance this out, you know, a comment from this gender critical, well-known uh, feminist, Graham Lineham, what do you have to say about it? And the, the whole point is just it's it's a drumbeat. It's matchsticks being built into a, a giant model. It starts really small, but by keeping it going day on day on day, they're making a controversy. So when people think about trans issues, they don't think, oh, trans issues, that's that's my friend Natalie, that's my mate. And instead they think, oh, trans issues, that's a controversy, you know? And that's mm. even people who are already on the right side. And it's, means... it's very cynical. Sorry. No, no, ahead. no. Um, I was just going to say, uh, speaking of allies and such, like, unfortunately, they're starting to find quite a lot of allies in our political parties. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to bother talking about the Tories because fuck the Tories. Um, I mean, they're, you'd expect... Obviously they're transphobic. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, big shock. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you do have significant chunks of the bastards who've made their way into Labour. Um, you've got quite an influx with the sort of mass movement that's been built. We are getting them turfed out. Like, that is happening. Unfortunately, like, my local experience is they're getting kicked out of the party locally and then going and joining the Greens. Um, 
And I know there's some prob- like big problems up in the SMP, which I believe we're going to get to later. Um, but yeah, there's a fair number of transphobic MPs. There's a lot of transphobic uh, grassroots activists. They're here. I've been to plenty of CLP meetings where like trans rights in the negative are brought up every single meeting for multi- yeah. like for long periods of time because they can't talk about anything else. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the same CLP as you and I mean, I've only been to one meeting, but the meeting I went to, it was the first question that came up was about trans issues in a transphobic sense and then a couple of times during the meeting on completely unrelated topics they would pull it all back to trans issues and then at the end they were flyering for a meeting to kind of push anti-trans ideology within the CLP that's how extensive it is yeah I mean it to be clear it's pretty bad in Bristol compared to a lot of places, but it's it's still disgusting. It makes you want to not go. It really makes you yeah. want to not go to CLP meetings and be involved whatsoever. As I said, thankfully, getting them kicked out. Unthankfully, turning up in the greens. Well, if I... If I could, if I could interject here, there's something I'd like to make clear to the audience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've said this to everyone on this podcast many times before, but the Scottish Greens, of which I am a member, are a different party to the Green Party of England and Wales. Yes, very we split, are, yes. We uh, split, yeah. Scottish Greens We split are amicably. Yeah. When, when the Holyrood Parliament came to be, we split amicably. And although we are sister organisations and we do collaborate on international issues um, and on issues specific to the UK and to Ireland, um, we are different parties. Having said that, I would like to say that I have noticed the the issues that Labour is having, where a number of turfs are coming in and are attempting to use the structures of Labour to give a platform to their voice and are basically fighting for control of it and being beaten back. A similar thing has been happening in the Green Party of England and Wales as well. Now, I will not speak to how well that has been going because I'm not a member of that party. But I do know people within the Green Party of England and Wales who have fought very, very, very hard against the TERFs and others who are who are entering. And so it's important that I think we can all agree. It's important to recognise that the actions of these TERFs is because they are empowered, they're funded, and they recognise that they have to seize every possible avenue of voice and of social power that exists to them. And so where they are not warmly embraced or just taken as part of the uh, the wallpaper, like in the Tory party, they are trying it with every party they can get their claws into. And so it's something that has to be fought by everyone in, in every good conscience, no matter the party you're in. Absolutely. And I'll be talking about my own work in that in a little bit um, and the work of some of us in the Scottish Greens on it. But I think, uh, Matt, you were talking a little bit about your experiences with the CLP. Could I ask a question, actually? Absolutely. Would I be right in saying that nationally Labour have been fighting very hard to try and mitigate this rhetoric and to keep it marginalised and to put it through their disciplinary processes and that this doesn't reflect on the national leadership of Labour? Uh, Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. I think there are questions to be asked about particular people sometimes. So you had issues like... um, John McDonald in the 2017 election did an interview with Mumsnet, which is 
stupidly one of the other big congregations of turfs online because mum's net of course um now that's pretty much been the only black mark against his record on that one but i know he is good friends with uh marks of occur roots of occur so i wouldn't be surprised if they have his ear um but generally like there were some issues with the manifesto which obviously might have been talked about last episode i've not actually listened to that yet yeah we did we kind of went into everything that kind of what happened with the manifesto mm. the kind of lack of clarity over kind of safe spaces um comments made by laura pidcock and such that yeah we discussed all about I, that. I won't bother i won't bother treading over that again then but you know i mean the takeaway from that really felt i mean to me as obviously as a bit of an outsider to this looking in was that there just wasn't a lot of focus on the entire issue either side of it. Um, it just seemed very, it seemed very sidelined. Like we're not dealing with this just now. We're not making it worse, but we're also not really making anything better. Yeah, I um, mean, and I don't, I, 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 don't know if that is like a tactic or it's been an oversight or whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, obviously, there are, like James said, there are issues within the party. There's issues within. Every party at the moment with um, TERFs trying to work their way up the ladder and make sure that their points of view are definitely known and they're the right ones. It just seems like it's kind of in a holding pattern for Labour at the moment, which isn't great. Um, it's, 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 it's not the worst thing that it could be because it's not gone full TERF, but it's definitely not good that the, the right people aren't sitting with the, the right weight behind them. Yeah, I mean... From from positions that actually matter on this, Corbyn's positive, like Corbyn is pro-trans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shadow Equalities Minister, Dawn Butler, is a very mm-hmm. vocal ally. She's yeah. wonderful. Um, so you expect it to go in the right direction, especially if, you know, especially if Dawn Butler stays in Equalities, if, th- please, 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 she ends up as actual Equalities Minister in about a, a week or two. Um <laughs> You know, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but yeah, the general direction, and I, you know, I don't think the membership in general of the Labour Party has any problem. If, if everything I've seen has been to the complete opposite, it's a few, it's a few gobshites and a lot of people telling them to piss off. And as as you alluded to, the disciplinary ah, the disciplinary processes are doing their job like with anti-semitism a little slowly but you know it's all he shit he said she said bullshit there's you know they get there in the end i have seen people kicked out people i've reported have been kicked out again they are finding homes elsewhere but you know you do your best yeah so um james do you want to kind of have a bit of a chat about how these issues are kind of affecting scottish uh, we don't normally talk Scott Paul, but in this instance, it is important <laughs> to address. So, yeah, how these uh, issues are kind of manifesting and being addressed within Scottish politics. So, I am legally obliged to give a disclaimer on behalf of this podcast that Scott Paul is being ruthlessly confined just to the specific topic <laughs> under the unusual circumstances surrounding transphobia in Scotland. Please do not tune away from this station. No, um, I'm aware of how contentious Scott Paul is, and I'm aware that what I'm about to say will probably annoy a few people, um, including, I suspect, a previous contributor, Elijah, is probably not going to be very happy with me, but... 
To preface this, um, as was alluded to at the start in my introduction, I'm active in the Scottish Greens. I've done quite a lot for them. And specifically, I've worked with the Rainbow Greens representative group on the subject of transphobia and in making sure it's not got any place within the Scottish Greens. But to explain how this all went down and to give a little bit of background, I'd like to, if it's okay, give a little bit of political background to Scottish independence and the SNP. Because to understand how transphobia is playing out in Scotland, you actually have to understand the SNP's inner power dynamics. And this is not policy. This is not about, um, you know, any of the particular issues that I may disagree with them on politically. It's more about the actual people who are in the SNP and how they work. So if you're you can't prepared- see it, but I'm vibrating right now. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? If you, if you just very bravely prepared to take on Scott Paul, <laughs> I think I can handle it. We'll have to see. Okay. Trans people are trying to get Indie Ref Two in through the back door. Damn it! <laughs> oh, oh man, I wish. <laughs> like that would be easy. That that would be a, a great one to talk about. No, no. Um, so. Here's the thing. I'm, I have worked formally on an election campaign for Scottish Greens in 2016, um, but all that I'm about to say here is purely my own opinion and does not reflect on the opinions of the Scottish Green Party. And I want to get that right out the door up front. Yep. I really am just some person with an opinion here. My experience of the Indiref um, as it kicked off was kind of interesting. Um, the Indiref is what got me formally properly involved in politics. Before that, I was just shouting at my television all the time. And then, full disclosure, result didn't go how I wanted it to. And I was like, oh, well, either I put up or I shut up, either I actually do something to try and make my community around me better, or I just give up and just wallow in the, the sadness of it all. And what was interesting to me, what drew me into politics was the fact that the 2014 Indie Ref it's seen in many different ways, but my personal experience of it is that it was quite, it had a very strong left bent. It was very characterised by um, new policy ideas that verged on socialism, that, that nudged up toward it, that gestured toward it. And that was very encouraging to me. It made me feel that, oh, the, the Scottish body politic maybe has an appetite for left-wing ideas that we could see developed. Now, as it turns out, and as I've come to understand, it basically went down like this. Scottish National Party are in favour of independence. That is their reason for existence. But back before 2014, back when the referendum was only just kind of being fought out, their then leader, Alex Salmond, and the others in positions of power in the SNP, recognised that there wasn't an appetite for it in Scotland. They just, if there was no one was absolutely champing at the bit to go independent who wasn't already in the SNP. And they really needed to expand their base. And as everyone who's ever tried to convince someone to take a, a major change knows, there's two ways you can go about it. Either you frighten them by going, look, we need to change our ways or disaster is coming. That's also known as the Brexit approach to Scottish independence. <laughs> but that didn't exist back then. Or you have to go, look how much better it could be. And as I think everyone on this podcast can agree, the, the new ideas, the visions of the future, the hope that might exist um, to come... That all lies with the left. All that energy is on the left right now. The right doesn't have it. The neoliberal order is dying, if not dead already. They've got no ideas. And so the SNP kind of went, I guess we're going to have to like get some left vision in here to infuse people. And I guess, I guess to get a cause for independence, we need to build a broad left-orientated base to try and carry the vision. And so that's what we set out to do when they set up Yes Scotland as an independent, you know, non-party partisan campaigning group. 
that's a, a joke for those of us who have seen it through. Um, they invited in the Scottish Greens, they invited in all others who are willing to participate in a positive vision for an independent Scotland. And they used their work and they used their campaigners and they used their vision and momentum and they kind of rebranded the SNP as a sort of centre-left party. Now, this is where I'm really going to annoy Elijah. My take on the SNP is as follows. They're a centrist, centre-left at a push party. They're not really chomping at the bit to do anything that's really, or champing at the bit, I should say, to do anything that's really socially progressive in a massive way, as I'll evidence in a minute. This is reflected, or this reflects their internal party structure, whereby the SNP's kind of got three different factions in it. It has the kind of neoliberal, pro-business, business is good, we just wish it was done from Edinburgh rather than Westminster lot. And Alex Salmond was quite in with them. And quite a few of our MSPs and MPs are still in with them. Then there's the kind of sort of socially progressive in the sense that they want a kind of social democracy, Sweden-esque kind of vision of an independent Scotland. And Nicola Sturgeon comes from that contingent. And it must be said that most of the current rank and file membership and supporters of the SNP tend to fall into that bin right now. More to do with the fact that they kind of came on board after the independence referendum because they saw the SNP kind of leading that broad coalition and went, oh, I guess these guys are on the left then. The other party, the other the other faction within the party is you kind of traditional kind of, there's no other way to put it, tartan Tories. They are Tories in the sense that they're tied into the shooting estates, they're, they're tied into the grouse farming, they're tied into the landed gentry. And their thing is, again, they kind of like society the way it is. They just wish that the money was going through Edinburgh and through their personal purses rather being rooted through London. And so these these three factions are kind of in a precarious balance among the SNP kind of national institutions. But in order to build this case for a left-wing independence movement, they kind of had to to kind of seed ground and kind of put on the, the happy, smiling face of, hey, look, we're progressive. We want these good things. We want to ban fracking and all this kind of stuff. And so they kind of invited that in. And so that's how they, they approached the independence referendum. But these, these other factions are still there. They've just kind of been biding their time. And the SNP's kind of ruthless party discipline has kind of kept things in check. And that kind of sets the stage for the most part going into all the kind of transphobic stuff that began to kick off. And I became aware of this. I kind of saw this coming. Um, you know, two years ago, I kind of was doing a, a review of where I reckoned the political parties in Scotland were going, what I thought their policy options would be. Um, and, you know, those of us in the Greens had been looking at a lot of the SNP's announcements. You know, they said, we've banned fracking. Actually, they hadn't. They just, you know, they told that to the membership. But in court, we're actually telling judges, no, 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 we haven't banned fracking. We've just, you know, put a temporary moratorium on issuing any new planning permission. It's totally not banned. Um, this kind of sophistry with their own members and with the general public made me wonder, well, where's the SNP actually likely to go? And looking at the Brexit thing and all the horrors it entails, Suddenly, the SNP don't need a left-wing side of things in order to make a compelling reason to leave the United Kingdom. Their compelling reason is, listen, do you want to stick around for this chaos? And that's where they've kind of shifted. And because they've shifted in that direction, because I kind of figured, oh, they're going to they're gonna build off the Brexit stuff and that's going to be their main push for independence going forward, that meant they didn't need to be quite so left in their rhetoric. And as I see it today, the kind of the touch button bleeding edge issue of 
leftist politics and leftist praxis in Scotland and the UK as a whole, it kind of aligns perfectly with the trans rights movement. And so looking closely at this, I was thinking, do you know what? I think probably after probably after 2021 Holyrood elections, I think the SNP are going to have a Barney about trans rights. I think that's where they're headed, because at that point, the people who've been biding their time are going to go, look, we don't need to put up with these lefties and we don't need to deal with Nicola Sturgeon. Why don't we get back to more centrist politics? And why don't we use a wedge issue to start a fight over it? I kind of saw this coming. And so last year, I worked with the Rainbow Greens to put together a motion to bring to our conference, um, conference in 2018, to basically say, look, we are a trans-positive party. We have no place for transphobes. We want nothing to do with transphobes. Uh, people who don't understand are welcome to learn and come on board. And people who've made mistakes in the past are still welcome as long as they as long as long they update their thinking. They're welcome within the Scottish Greens. But at the end of the day, line in the sand, we are for trans rights. Um, and that's just the way it is. And I did it both for the, the political reasons I've outlined, but more importantly, because it's the right thing to do. And I wasn't confident that the SNP would honestly stick to their, their good intentions on this. But I kind of, you know, I dusted my hands off after we got this done, after we had the fights about it, after we put together a proper, uh, you know, code of conduct that reinforced this. And I kind of kind of thought, right, great, we're sorted. Now the election will come along. And then later when the SNP is starting a fight about this, everyone will know exactly where we stand. And it'll be clear that there is a left party in Scotland. I did not expect the SNP to be quite so uh, stupid for want of a better word, <laughs> as to start the fight early, it took me completely by surprise. But the reason they've started the fight, it's it, what I want to get across here is it's got very little to do with the actual substance of it. It's quite cynical. To take you back, before Nicola Sturgeon was leader of the SNP, Alex Salmond was. And Alex Salmond, they had a helicopter that flew them around during the 2014 referendum. And some interesting MSPs got to sit on that helicopter, including Joan McAlpine. Um, who's well known as being a bit of a turf these days. Um, and some other high hegens from the, uh, the Scottish National Party also got to fly on that helicopter with Alex Salmond. But now that Nicola Sturgeon's in charge, Joe McAlpine doesn't get to go on the helicopter very much, nor does another M uh, MP, Member of Parliament, known as uh, Joanna Cherry. And these are the people who have started the Big Barney in the SNP and more broadly have, have amplified the press within Scottish society in their transphobic kind of rhetoric and views. And it's pure, it's political opportunism. It's their attempt to start a controversy to help just make Nicola Sturgeon a little bit less secure and to maybe make the left would tilt the SNP, bring it a little bit back to centre. And it's got very little to do with their own personally held views. It's more to do with the power that's at play. And what I propose to you is that actually most of the problems we face in society today around transphobia has got less to do with honest, sincere dialogue. I mean, we've discussed already on this podcast how they nakedly lie, they distort facts. It's got nothing to do with that. And it's honestly, while it features, I don't think the, the whole, oh, ew, it's icky kind of nonsense that a lot of these people kind of pantomime. I don't think that's got much to do with it either. I think it's really to do with power. And I think the SNP kind of debacle is illustrative because here's what's happened. The SNP, because the Gender Recognition Act is partially devolved in Scotland, it's implemented in Scottish law, the SNP launched a consultation on this and the TERFs fought like hell over it because they wanted to have their voice be the one that was preferenced in all of the feedback that went in. And so all of the trans-positive groups and charities in Scotland fought really hard 
to make sure that the responses that were coming in from public, that were coming in from organisations, that they all gave an honest account of the problems with the Gender Recognition Act and what should be reformed. And they fought like, like hell on this. And eventually, when the results of this consultation were published, it was actually great. We all like we all applauded because the consultation basically said, look, trans people should be able to self-ID. Um, it should, you know, feature these following kind of legal protections. And it kind of it went down a laundry list of just all the things that you could really kind of hope for. Um, and they also said, and this is worth pointing out, that in addition, we should look at some legal recognition of non-binary identity. Um, this is a thing that enough people have commented on, that this is a serious ongoing public concern that non-binary people should have some kind of legal way to represent how they see themselves. And so everyone kind of went, oh, great, done and dusted, get to walk away from it. Except then Joan McAlpine, with her allies across the Scottish National Party, decided they weren't happy with this. They saw a political opportunity and decided to essentially kick up a fuss when it went to the committee review stage in Holyrood. The net result is that the SNP, in the capacity as Scottish government, they issued what they were going to do about this, which was nothing. They said that due to the kind of ongoing controversy, they were going to postpone making any firm decisions on this. They were going to re-engage with another public consultation and that the whole thing would be decided after the Holyrood elections. Fucking because cowards. the SNP leadership yeah. are substantially more intelligent politically than the people kicking up shit. They basically, they punted it into the long grass as total cowards. You're right, Matt. They're just absolute yeah. cowardice and cynical cowardice at that. And here's the worst part. No mention about non-binary anything yeah. in that. Nothing at all. And it's exactly, it's, this is, this if nothing else is illustrative of what the problem is in our society. It's that trans issues are kind of end up being kind of siloed. They're a thing, they're a nice to have in the best case scenario. And so you're seeing it with like the SNP kick that back, Labour's manifesto stuff. I'm not having a go at Labour. I, I, no, I you, can, you absolutely can over that. We all did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will have a go at Scottish <laughs> Labour in a moment because yeah. they've been doing mm. some dirt too. But like, you know, Labour, they have kind of just went, oh, this is a landmine. Let's just avoid it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my take on it. Oh, yeah. no, they were yeah. pretty cowardly. I mean, one thing. And I understand. Oh, go ahead. One thing I will say uh, in regards to everything that happened with BSNP, it did give us the delightful moment of Joanna Cherry, MSP for <laughs> Edinburgh Southwest, holding up a meme of Lily from the Anime Zombieland saga that said, bang, and the turf is gone. <laughs> In the middle of the Hollywood uh, Commons, which is just for most. Oh ridiculous. no! It wasn't that one. It wasn't that. Uh, it was the "shut the fuck up" turf meme. Yeah, yeah, it was. Ah. And uh, Bless you wanna... Sonic Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it gets turns, better because turns out trans furries are praxis. <laughs> I think yeah. it, it just says a wonderful thing for where we are in 2019. That a famous video game playing furry can get noticed <laughs> in a political debate, which is lovely. Uh, but it's such a shame that, you know, the cause of what got us there. Yeah, it's uh, it's like 
It's actually it's, it's more silly than that because Joanna Cherry is a uh, MP. She sits in Westminster in the UK oh. Parliament. And my understanding, and people can correct me later if I'm wrong about this, because I always find it difficult to keep all the J-turfs kind of clear in my head. Um, she was actually giving this evidence, um, not as like a sitting MSP, but as an MP, kind of, you know, a member of a party who'd received this vile abuse. <laughs> um, but where it gets... Kind of, I, I want to say funny, but it's funny in the sense that you've got to laugh or you'll cry. There is a, a certain, um, quite lovely, I must say, I've spoken to her on Twitter, um, former candidate for Scottish Labour called Francis Carmel Hull, um, who was going up against Joanne Cherry. Um, at this forthcoming election. And she posted a uh, Sillet Bang kind of, you know, just she shitposted. Yeah. Yeah. She, she shitposted this Sillet Bang thing that said, um, bang and the turf is gone alongside a cutoff image of, you know, uh, Joanna Cherry. And it's just, you know, it's, it's silly, right? But um, because Scottish Labour are a special kind of terrible, and I want to be crystal clear, I see and understand Scottish Labour as an entirely distinct, although they're linked, they are distinct in their leadership and in their their structures from national Labour, which is why they often seem to be at loggerheads. And Scottish yeah, Labour is, is much more centrist than national Labour is. Because they are kind of cowards in of their own special stripe, but also because they kind of don't know what to do other than follow the SNP while criticising them every step of the way, their oh. response was to deselect Francis Carmel Hull. Um, for that. They actually just straight up re- renounced her candidacy, said, no, you're not allowed to be a candidate anymore. And um, I, I actually, you know, full disclosure, I reached out to her on Twitter and said, this is outrageous. If you decide you, you're looking for another party, you're welcome to come talk to the Scottish Greens. I'm sure as many of us would be very happy to support you. She's decided to stay because apparently the person they replaced her with, she rates very highly. So, you know, we can look into that. Mm-hmm. But the, the sheer cowardice and the sheer just, oh, you know, yeah. oh, this could be... Con-. I, I honestly think they just they kicked her be- to avoid controversy rather than because she did anything particularly wrong. And that's just horrendous. I mean, that's just creating controversy anyway. It's just yeah, it moving is. it about. It's well, not changing anything. Well, like I said, it seems like my experience of Scottish Labour is they don't really have any ideas on how to handle situations or to make new policy ideas. So they tend to just criticise the SNP ruthlessly whilst also proposing things that kind of follow in their shadow. So the SNP had a big d- discussion about, you know, um, trans rights and, you know, brought out some transphobia. So Scottish Labour went, oh, well, SNP shut that down real quick. I guess we're going to do the same thing. And it's its its, it's own special kind of hell is the way I would describe it. Yeah. Isn't that a good way yeah. to describe Scott Paul anyway? <laughs> You're not entirely wrong. The independence referendum broke a lot of people's brains, especially in Scottish Labour. Um, it's, yeah. There's a lot of fucking... A lot of people left the party during that. Um, I know we actually had a, a lot of Scotland people come join the Scottish Greens and mm-hmm. it was great. It was great having an influx of comrades because it's one of the things that helped those of us who are socialists and anarchists in the party to actually make the party's leftward slant much more prominent. But um, it's definitely, you know, for all that's benefited the Scottish Greens and to a much lesser extent, the SNP, it's definitely had an effect on Scottish Labour. Big time, big time. Yeah, I just need to go to a CLP meeting to notice it. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had something a bit more positive to say about it. Um, the only other I mean, thing... No, there, go ahead. There's not, there's not going to be a lot positive really to say about any of this for the most part. That's that's the saddest part about the whole 
Scottish Neil? politics just isn't in a good state, and this, like you say, I know that this um, trans politics isn't in a good state either. Absolutely, yeah. To tie it back into what you've said, that the, the, the politics and the power plays and everything else mm-hmm. about the reason that transphobia and that horrible fucking culture war shites really had a big push within the SNP, and now it's starting to kind of bludgeon out. It's just that there are no real good places in Scottish politics um, to to latch on to, really. I mean, even, even for the left, everything. I mean, obviously, the Scottish Greens, I've, I've not got much exposure, if I'm honest. Um, no, it's, that's fine. I, you know, I respect that. Yeah. We are... Uh, there's just not a, there's not a good place to go to that's, like, there and a presence, if you know what I mean. And I know the Scottish Greens, obviously, they do actually have... A, they do actually have a respectable presence in the in Holyrood. Um, and the, the, they have been the, the party that's kind of held the SNP to account more successfully than other parties have um, over the last few years in Holyrood. But it's just a shame that a party like that doesn't have the the representation that it probably would do had it well, an established brand name, if you know what I mean. Yeah, to it's just common kind of honestly. Um, like the Scottish Greens, we're, we're firmly transpositive. And I won't lie, like when I brought the motion... Yeah, there were a, a couple of people who decided they were going to stand up and oppose it. And uh, I won't name names, I won't get into details. All I will say is that the Conference of the Scottish Greens roundly, overwhelmingly told them to shut up and sit down. No, we're a transpositive uh, political organisation. And uh, I'm very, very proud of that. If if we hadn't, I wouldn't have felt at home there. But I do feel very at home. And we have a number of candidates who are standing in our forthcoming elections who are trans and who are non-binary. And I'm very proud of that. But like you say, we don't have that representation more widely. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got councillors. We have a very good input into the Scottish Parliament where mm-hmm. uh, Patrick Harvey, Ross Greer and others have been mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. a lot of work to force the SNP to not deliver neoliberal budgets and to try and make them live up to their, their high-sounding rhetoric but uh it's still it is a struggle and partly it's a struggle because to be honest right it, you know I, I, hopefully this doesn't overstep the the scott poll demarcation i've made but um <laughs> the the snp they can't take criticism from the left it's where they're most vulnerable because mm-hmm. of the reasons i outlined previously and so they've worked very very hard to keep the scottish green voice boxed in to make us just the party of green stuff and to ignore all the social issues and ignore all the economic issues that we're very, 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 very left on in comparison to them and more broadly. And this is why I think um, they're quite, they're very scared of a Corbyn premiership because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Corbyn's quite left. And I think Corbyn would call their bluff on a lot of things. And I think that would kick off a real Barney among um, the SNP kind of leadership roles. And it's just, it's kind of ridiculous when you, when you really drill right down into it that... We're seeing the SNP and others in Scottish politics, either in Scottish Labour's case, either cravenly just dodging the topic entirely, or in the, the Scottish National Party case, taking advantage of it for internal political kind of fracas kind of stuff. It's just, it's really, it's really cynical. And I think it really speaks to the real problem that people who are, who are trans face within society in that they're kind of, it's, it, they're not seen as people, they're seen as kind of, totems or indicators of this kind of culture war that's where this is going and it's yeah. it's it's horrible yeah that's that that's really scottish politics kind of drilled down to its core isn't it it's it's pet issues before people yeah. and the, the the way that you can leverage uh, leverage the the issues themselves to to gain more traction power 
um, to to get your thing over the line. Yeah. Um, fuck. I, that that was a that was a really good take. Um, I, I'm glad we lifted the moratorium <laughs> temporarily, a lad, temporarily. <laughs> All right, Scottish let's... politics chat. But <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, was, it. <laughs> that was that was really interesting. Thanks very much for that, James. Now we've depressed. <laughs> I think that it's been a really interesting. At times fun, at times horrific uh, chat, and it's time for it. We'll wash it all clean with a round of comment or commentary at, personally. Yes. Yes. Yes, let's let's um, smoothen the brains. Let's cheer let's ourselves up with some brain worms. <laughs> <laughs> By the time this okay, is over, okay. I'll have no brains, so that will be fine. <laughs> so in case this is your first episode, I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll Eventually, I'll give up on the introduction of what this game is. Um, if this is your first episode, though, um, we play a game called Comment and Commentariat. I am going to read something which I have found on a horrible place on the internet, namely a news website. It is going to be something that was either above the line or below the line, so I want to know what you think it is. Is it comment or is it commentariat? I've, so. been, I've been playing along at home and I'm absolutely <laughs> dreadful at this, so no one has to worry about losing. Wait, I've got that um, tied up. Just to be clear, even <laughs> though we've done a kind of trans-focused episode, this is not a trans-focused comment oh God, or no. commentary because we, we don't want to oh just God, be reading no. out a whole bunch of transphobia. Nobody actually wants yeah. that. Yeah, the, the last thing I wanted to do is read a bunch of Julie Bindle articles. <laughs> Wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, to be honest. No one deserves that. Yeah. Not even Julie Bindle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, okay, let's get started then, shall we? Right. You don't have to have a degree in critical analysis to see that Boris's use of the words pickaninny and watermelon smiles was an attack on Blair and his imperial delusions, not on people in the Congo or anywhere else. Comment or commentariat. Wow. What? Commentariat. Excuse me? How? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure that's commentariat. Yeah, I, I've, I've got to go commentariat. commentariat. Right, okay, so we'll, we'll tie break it. Who was it then if it was commentariat? Oh, no, now hang on here. I might be able to smell the sewer, but I'm not getting down into it and naming the turrets. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, doke. Even the publication? I think that Ooh, was... Oh, Telegraph? Telegraph. Times. Telegraph, Telegraph, Times. It was none of them. Mm. It was actually our good and large of cranium friend, Brendan O'Neill, uh. in The Spectator. <laughs> of course. Of course, course it's The Spectator. Yeah. Okay, right. What about... Corbyn does not help himself. Instead, he makes it easy for his enemies to score telling points off him. Witnesses meandering indecision over Brexit. Right from the time of the red bus with the 350 million pledge, he has sat on the fence. When leadership was called for, he gave his vacillation. He is just not up to the job, and I believe he knows it, which is why his campaigning style is so lacklustre and half-hearted. I do not think he wants to win the election and become Prime Minister. A great shame that he did not step aside two years ago and let a more capable person take over. As it's too late to change leaders now, we shall have to watch as Labour lose the election and consign the country to another five years of Tory misrule. Is that comment Dan Hodges? That is pure distilled fubby comment. Yeah, it's comment, absolutely. Um, oh, I'm going to okay. go commentariat. Ooh. Okay, okay. Being controversial. Mm-hmm. It was 
a comment. Ooh, and I'm sure you'll all guess exactly where it was from, so I'll not even bother asking. It, it was, was from The Guardian. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's it. The, the bastion of the, the centrist melt comment is free, unfortunately. All right, another one. Um, oh, what to pick? They're all so good. <laughs> For a certain value of good, yeah. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. All right. When he says, in the context of London Bridge and other recent Islamist attacks that we are living with the consequences of Britain's repeated military interventions overseas, he's depicting ISIS-style terror in the West as a consequence of decisions taken by the British Army and other military forces. It is, to use woke lingo Corbynistas will be familiar with, a species of victim-blaming comment or commentary at. I knew it was coming, but it didn't make it any better. It's, is this someone it's who atrocious. doesn't understand how cause and effect works? Fuck I me. think it's I think it's commentary. I'm going comment just for the Islamist bit. Yeah, I'm mm. going comment. Oh wait, did he use the term Islamist? Um. Yep. Yep. Islamist attacks. I did not catch that. I'm still going commentary. I'm still going commentary, but fuck me. That's just naked. <laughs> it was commentary. Oh. Wow. Yep, there we go. And uh, would we like to guess the publication? Some right-wing shit rag. Uh, yep. <laughs> Mail. The, the Sun? Oh, it might be a bit highbrow for The Sun, actually. The Express. Mm. Oh, no, no. It was spiked. Oh. And it was again oh, yeah, Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> Is this just a Brendan you... O'Neill special edition? <laughs> it's say, not. It's not. This is a thousand percent of my like recommended daily average of Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, no more Brendan O'Neill. This is a lethal right, overdose. <laughs> Very coincidental that Labour pledged to reduce the price of train tickets on the day their union friends set out to cause misery over Christmas and New Year for South Western Railways passengers. A sign of things to come under a Marxist Labour government. Comment or commentariat? Commentariat. Comment. Comment. Okay. It was a comment. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep, that comment came from the BBC News website. Ah. You of love course, your yeah. Okay. Of course. Yeah, I, I do, I do. I love it. There's always always a take ready to be picked <laughs> from the BBC News website. Right, let's round it off with one last one. You'll like this one. The idea that whites as a race participated oh in the slave God. trade or benefited from slavery is ridiculous. <laughs> in, 1860, in 1860, less than 5% of whites in the American South owned slaves. And according to the black historian John Hope Franklin, three quarters of white Southerners had no economic interest in the maintenance of slavery. As Doug Stokes has pointed out, stigmatising an entire ethnic group because of the sins of a small minority is a textbook example of racism. Oh. Comment or commentary at. Oh I think I know who wrote this. <laughs> I think I've read this before. Uh, I mean, I'm going comment, right. but... I'm going commentary at because uh, James wouldn't have read a random comment somewhere. Oh, see, I should have kept my mouth shut <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I, this, I, I right, pretended da- I didn't hear that. David, is this, uh, is this Boris Johnson? It's not actually, no. No. It's not. It's a a very recent article as well. I I like that guess, though. That's nice. 
It was. It was he, a good he, guess, and it wouldn't have been out of the out, <laughs> out of the bounds. No, of that's reality. the thing. He he wrote something just like this a few years ago, back in two thousand and six. Well, it wouldn't um, surprise me. The other day. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me because um, it's came from someone who seems to think quite along the lines of him. Is it Toby pretty, Young? Pretty frequently. It was Toby yeah! Young. Yes. Oh wow! It was Toby yeah, Young writing is. in the critic. <laughs> Noted eugenicist Toby Young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, noted only not announced because of his wife Toby Young. <laughs> oh, God. Like, right, so can we take a can we take a minute to unpack that one? Because I saw it the other day and it just about melted my brain. <laughs> yeah, like, so um so basically if if only Prince Andrew had a wife that would keep him keep him right, basically, um he, he wouldn't have been announced because um Toby Young apparently, self-admittedly, uh, holds some some views and proclivities that wouldn't be socially acceptable, but he's only not acting on them because of his wife. That's all self-admitted. You can look up the tweets. Well, they are. <laughs> See, the thing that melted my brain about this is not just what he blatantly just admitted to us all. And it's like, it's this is one of those cases where you're laughing because you don't want to process it, but yeah. I actually... I... I think he didn't actually intend it where it was meant, but the way he intended it is so, it's like illuminating of the, the I want to say caverns of his mind. They certainly are cavernous. There's not a lot in there. Um, he like, I think he has fully internalized this idea that men are monsters with no self-restraint who will just do all sorts of heinous things and it's the role of women to fully kind of hold them back, essentially, um, whether by dressing modestly or by being the wife standing behind him holding a rolling pin sort of threateningly sort of thing. I think he's fully internalised that. And so he feels that were it not for his wife, of course he'd be off the straight and narrow doing all sorts of perverse stuff because that's what men do, right? I think I think that's where he's coming from. And it's just mind-melting. Yeah, it feels... Yeah, definitely. He's like... He's, he's taking the idea of like some, some fairly extreme an old feminist um, views of what genders, what, what both genders are, but he's not been able to lose the concept of hard and rigid gender <laughs> roles. Mm. And he's just really confused in some kind of in-between space. I don't, uh, yeah, it's... It, can you, the, you can just, you can, you can see the uh, gears turning that lead to him saying, going, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for my wife, I'd be a nonce just like Prince Andrew. <laughs> like, you, that's, that's, like, you can, you can just see it. It's just like, you know, it's like when, when those things where you like drop a penny in the top of a machine, watch it going all the way down and then see a flattened coin come out the end sort of style. Ground finally between the gears of his massive pounding brain. <laughs> and the gender issues sunken within, like Jesus, a smooth coin drops out. <laughs> I, I think oh, that's a good way to describe okay. everyone who features in these segments. Oh yeah. yeah, almost universally. Yeah, good God. So, I mean, comment or commentary aside, um, I learned some things tonight. <laughs> um, that was really good. Is this the GI Joe? Thank you joke? very much oh. to both Matt and James for kind of coming on to the podcast we hope that you feel welcome mm-hmm. back to chat about trans issues or any other issues uh that we absolutely on. absolutely absolutely if you ever need anyone to lay into random political figures feel free to give me a shout <laughs> <laughs> And, and yeah, if you ever want anyone to like test the boundaries of Scott Paul and really annoy everyone, <laughs> then uh, 
Yeah, no, I'm, I had had a great time. It was really fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, no, no, brilliant having you both on. Absolutely. Um, like I say, I, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I feel like that was a really good, a really good conversation over trans identity, trans rights, um, and the general state of politics as they stand in the UK and specifically in Scotland as well. Uh, yeah, no, good job, everyone. That was that was cracking. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll end it there. Um, so this episode should be hitting... Oh, you should be listening to this if you're diligent with your podcast listening. <laughs> um, you should be listening to this on Wednesday. Look forward to it at some point over the coming weekend where, you know, after um, sticking my dick into the, the hornet's nest that is the culture war, um, I'm going to take it out and soothe it in the other one, which is anti-Semitism in labour. Oh, <laughs> um, no. You're just so, yeah. playing overheads this week, aren't you? I really am. I really am. I am. This is the most stressful week as an editor I could possibly put myself through. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we are going to have... Um, it'll be myself again. I'll be on with Ben and Elijah and Alistair. And also joining us, um, I think I'm probably safe to announce now, um, we will also have... Nate Bethea, off of Trash Future, joining Woo-hoo! us for that episode as well. We're nice. a legitimate podcast. We got a guest. <laughs> Real podcast. It only took us 20 episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, so look forward to that. Um, pray for me um, as I edit that episode. And yeah, we'll have that out to you. And then obviously the election live stream. Um, I keep saying we're going to give you more details. I keep not giving you more details. I'm going to disappoint you again and do the same thing. And yeah, there, it is happening. We just don't have any sort of firm details. Expect around nine o'clock on Thursday the 12th. Um, it will be on Twitch. We'll give you a link somewhere on Twitter. We'll make sure to plug it in one of the last episodes before. Um, we'll probably plug it on the um, episode we recorded on anti-Semitism at the end of the week. And we'll also let you know what the link is again on the final news an election roundup episode at the start of the final week, at the start of polling week. Oh, it's all, all right, happening. So, yep. Um, as usual, you can find us and follow us at PraxisCast on Twitter. Um, I won't go through the list of our Twitters. Um, you can find them in the show notes, though. And yeah, thanks very much, everyone. I, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. And we will see you all on the next one. Thanks for coming, guys. Gals. Hi. In general. Bye. (laughs) Cheerio.